we're going to uh, look at a quality of life that a scripture talks about that we're going to look at with the, the, the wider church later on in our time together. And it's a quality that we don't always value as much as I think God values. It's a quality that we kind of forget other people appreciate. And to illustrate that, I'm going to begin with uh, some Charlie Brown. And uh, those of you who are long in the church will know that I'm a big fan of cartoons. I'm a big fan of uh, Charlie Brown in particular. And there is a theme that runs through lots of the Charlie Brown cartoons where Lucy wants to hold a football, a rugby football. They call it a football, but you know what Americans are like. It's a round rugby football, so it's not perfectly circular. It's oval-shaped. And uh, they, in America, they hold that on uh, upright so that somebody can kick it because because it's shaped like an egg it falls over and there's a story that recurs every now and then where she says to Charlie Brown I'll hold the football and then at the last minute she will pull it away Charlie Brown says I can't believe it you must think I'm the most stupid person alive come on Charlie Brown I'll hold the ball and you kick it Hold it. Ha! That's a laugh. You'll pull it away and I'll kill myself. Why, Charlie Brown, how can you say that? Don't I have a face that you can trust? Don't I have an innocent look about me? Look at the innocence in my eyes. Charlie Brown says she's right. If a girl has innocent-looking eyes, you simply have to trust her. This time, I'm going to kick the football clear to the moon. <laughs> so she throws the ball away, pulls the ball away, and she says to him, what you have learned here today, Charlie Brown, will be of immeasurable value to you for many years to come. How do we know whether someone is trustworthy? Because trustworthiness, being able to trust someone, is a really important value. A really important value that when people say they're going to do something, they do it. And if they say they're not going to do something, they don't do it. People being honest and reliable is such a precious thing. She calls out to him again. Charlie Brown... I'll hold the ball, and you run up and kick it. You never hold it. You always pull it away, and I'll land flat on my back and kill myself. That is mistrust. That's mistrust of me as an athlete, a person, and a woman. Do you mistrust all women? Do you mistrust even your mother? Charlie Brown says, I don't mistrust my mother. Good grief. Now, if there's one person in this world I do trust, it's my mother. I'm not your mother, Charlie Brown. 
are we people who others will trust? If we say to a friend, I'll do that. If we say to a colleague, I'll do that. If we say to a friend, I won't do that. If we say to a colleague, I won't do that. Are we reliable? Later on, we're going to look at how Nehemiah chooses a couple of people to be leaders. And he chooses them because he says of Hanai, he was trustworthy. And uh, that's such an important value. I, one of the earliest stories I remember is a story that lots of you will know. It's a story about a little boy who was asked to be lookout on the edge of the village because there was a hungry and dangerous wolf that was in the vicinity. And they were worried that it would come in and attack people. So they posted different people at different times to be a lookout, a guard. And the little boy was looking out. He found it quite boring and didn't know what to do about it. And you'll know the story. He thought, what happens if I cry out, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming. So he did it. He thought, he cried out, wolf, wolf, wolf. And everybody jumped up and everybody rushed around. And he thought, this is really exciting. Everybody said, thanks for letting us know. Well done. And he thought, really valued and really important. And it was brilliant. Only problem was there wasn't a wolf. And after about half an hour, an hour, people came back and said, what's happened to the wolf? And he said, oh, I must have made a mistake. I thought, this is brilliant. I'm going to do that again. So the next day, he was asked to be the lookout again. It was his turn to be the lookout again. He cried out, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming. And they rushed around, grabbed him, took him to a safe place, grabbed everybody else, locked the door, shut the door, waited. And the wolf didn't come. And they went out to him and said, well, what happened? He said, oh, I must have made a mistake. And the third day, there was a wolf. We know the story. There was a wolf. And he cried out, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming. But they didn't trust him. Because he let them down so many times. And the wolf came and ate him. I wonder how we feel about this little verse. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who are trustworthy, those who are reliable, those who are honest, those who are believable. I want to invite us for a few moments to ask God to help us to be people of our word. There is an increasing culture where we say what people want us to say, knowing it's not really what we're going to do. And we begin to not trust each other. And trustworthiness in leaders, in individuals, in friends is so important. So let's be still for a moment and pray together.
Lord, some of us have been let down by people who have not been trustworthy. Will you heal those hurts? And Lord, we want to be people who others believe. We want to be people who others trust. If we say we're going to do something, we want everyone to have no doubt we're going to do it. If we say we're not going to do something, we want to be people who have no, everybody else has no doubt we're not going to do it. But God, it's hard. It's hard because it's not where our culture is. Will you help us to be trustworthy? Will you help us to be honest? Will you help us to be truthful? Even if it's not what people want to hear. Lord, help us, we pray. Our desire is to be trustworthy. Amen. I am not your mother, said Lucy. I am not your mother. We're in the book of Nehemiah, at least we were before Christmas, and we will uh, hopefully at some point before the return of Christ, or maybe not, uh, we'll finish Nehemiah. Um, It's a book of anger, it's a book of fear, but it's also a book of peace. We see all the causes of war that we are seeing unfold around us today. There is resentment of different people groups. There are threats of attack. And yet there isn't any violence in Nehemiah. What there is is a lot of prayer, of people coming to God and bringing their anger and their fear to him and letting God act on their behalf rather than raising weapons against others. They hold the weapons and never use them. And we're getting to the point where the wall has been completed. If you're unfamiliar with what this is all about, all of these are on YouTube. All of these are uh, wherever you get podcasts. You can go back and look at them over the last six months or so. Nehemiah says, when all our enemies heard about this, that is the completion of the task. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. God had done something without violence, without aggression, but simply through obedience and not being intimidated. And we're going to pick it up at the end of six as we go into seven, because the intimidation continues. Tobiah, who was the, uh, probably in charge of this part of, of Judea, uh, Jerusalem, uh, continues to be unhappy with them. And many of the people owe their loyalty there to him. They've made an oath to him, and he holds power over people. And they keep telling him... Uh, Uh, And they keep telling Nehemiah, they're sort of a go-between. They keep telling Nehemiah of all the good things that Tobiah wants to do. And Tobiah sends letters to intimidate him. And so we discover that in the next few verses, although the original plan was to build the wall, the job isn't finished. And Nehemiah needs to appoint leaders and people to watch over and protect the people. And so in chapter 7, he gathers, he kind of takes a stock take of all the people, and uh, he begins to reappoint people to jobs. And he starts off with gatekeepers. He says, after the wall had been rebuilt, I appointed the gatekeepers. Now, he looks for the people who were gatekeepers before, 
and, he, and their families, and, and a lot of the roles they do are kind of like family roles. If that's what your parent did, that's what you do. But what were the gatekeepers? They were the people who prevented danger. They watched who came in and who came out. They were guards. And uh, later on, he says, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. In other words, they're to just go out later. They're just they're to let people in and out after the, 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 the morning rush, not to be left open during the evening. But only in the midday do they let people come in and out so they can keep a guard on things. So these gatekeepers were to prevent danger. But there's not enough of them. So they ask ordinary people to help. We're also appointed residents of Jerusalem as guards. Now, there were 138 gatekeepers, plus the others who were asked to do it. They're named and numbered because this role was important. It's the first group of people he mentions. It matters. And it made me think, and this is where I went on a long digression, which you may at the end of this morning feel, well, that wasn't quite what we needed. But it seemed to me yesterday, for our long plan was to do the second part of the sermon, I don't know if I'm going to get there, but I got stuck on this stuff yesterday. And this question, who is it that we're the gatekeeper for? Who is it that we in life are just checking what goes in and goes out. That may be physically, that may be emotionally, that may be spiritually. We may be that we have children or grandchildren or children that we are particularly aunts and uncles to. And we're, we're gatekeeper. We're watching what goes into their minds. It may be that we're involved in education. It may be that we're involved in the NHS. And we guard and we watch. It may be that in our workplace, there are people, our role is to protect an ethos or a value. It may be that we have friends who are vulnerable. And there's a sense in which the gatekeeper is scanning the horizon. What's the threat? What's the danger? And that may be something that we haven't consciously thought that we do. We're looking out. And maybe we're keeping out. We're putting guards on a phone. We're not allowing certain things to be said or done in our homes. We're watching for who's coming in and out of an activity, maybe involved in our youth work. But also the gatekeepers let the right people in, and there may be relationships where you're trying to bring in good influence. You're trying to ensure good relationships good friendships. It may be from time to time, you're a steward on our Sunday morning. We can always need more and more stewards. Do speak to Mike, Mark and Michael. It may be that there's this role of letting in, of welcoming. That's what the gatekeepers did. They all, not only did they keep out, but they, 
And maybe there is an element of warning. Not like the little boy who cried wolf. A fake warning. But a genuine. Are there people in our lives, friends, family, that we need to say, I'm not sure about that news organization that you, that person you follow on X. I'm not sure about what you're reading. I want to pray for us for a few moments. If any of that resonates with us, if it doesn't, move on. But if any of us feel that God is asking us to be a gatekeeper, I want to pray for us for a moment. Lord, you know who is in our care. Will you give us eyes that scan the horizon? In church, in family, in work, in neighborhood. Give us courage to close the gate. Give us joy to open and welcome the gate to the right people, the right influences. We pray for those in our care for whom we are worried that the wrong influence is getting in. Will you show us what to do? Will you help us? Will you close that gate, we pray? Amen. Now then, there's a second group of people that get appointed, which is what the NIV calls the musicians. If you have other Bible translations, you will note that it usually says singers or singers and musicians. And uh, that's an interesting idea. The most important people to be appointed were the gatekeepers. The second most important group were the musicians. Why were they important? Why does he bother to talk about them? He's going to name them in a few moments. Why do they matter? Is this about our little, our, our little, our huge worship group? Well, it seems that what uh, Nehemiah is saying is that there was a real importance to enable and inspire worship, to lift the spirits, to create joy, to create hope, to create a sense of awe, which we've done together, to create a sense of majesty. They're named and numbered because they're important. But when, if you're with us last Sunday morning, uh, and last Sunday evening, when, it was last Sunday when we were talking about the uh, renewal. I said that actually we all participate. These guys were in inspiring and enabling worship. What is worship? It is thanksgiving. It is coming with gratitude to God. But it is also being in relationship of awe that creates faith and hope, that lifts our eyes to God. And we trust in him. It's an element of submission and commitment. And I want to ask the same question. Who are we inspiring and enabling to worship? And you say, well, I'm not in the worship group. No, but you can sing this morning. And what we've discovered and know is that the worship from the worship group is only the catalyst to the real worship, which is us together. And you, be, by being here, you, as we talked about a lot last week, just by being in the room, you're inspiring and encouraging other people. There is an atmosphere among us. 
And there is also a way in which we encourage and enable worship by a lifestyle of care and sharing love. We share the love of Jesus in such a way that people want to give thanks to God. They don't feel that God has abandoned them. They don't feel bitter and resentful. They experience that God has been with them. So how are we inspiring and enabling worship? By coming, by attending, but also just in the lifestyle of love for others. We inspire people to be grateful. You say, I don't understand that. I don't understand how my life can inspire anyone to be grateful. Well, we know how the opposite works. We all have a very easy ability to inspire people to be angry. It's very easy to do. And to make people feel angry with the church or angry with God. And those things are so close. So we're all called to inspire, and we're all part of the worship. We're all part of the music. We have some incredible musicians and singers, but they need you. It isn't the same for just them. It's us all together. And then he appoints the Levites. And there are three groups of workers in the temple that we discover in Nehemiah 7. There are priests. And they are the people who seem to, uh, well, we'll come back to them. Then there are Levites. Now, the priests were all uh, members of the Levite tribe, clan. Uh, And so I, I got a little bit confused, and you may be a little bit confused. What is the difference between a priest and a Levite? And so I did a little bit of research. It seems to change throughout the Bible. Um, But priests were people who were uh, Levites and sort of got promoted into a little bit more of a role. And then um, this passage also talks about temple servants. So what do these people do? Well, the priests are the people who stand between God and the ordinary people. They intercede. They bring the prayers and the offerings of the people, and perhaps they bring God's word out to the people. They stand in the gap. They intercede. They lead and inspire the worship. They create a sense of awe and humility and majesty and submission to God. And they also proclaim through the sacrificial system, they proclaimed God's forgiveness. And the Levites were the people who were not yet priests. They were the sort of assistants or the trainees, or sometimes they weren't ever going to be quite skilled enough to be a priest. So to be a priest, you had to start off as a Levite of the tribe of Levi, and then you got, it would seem uh, to be developed into the role of priests. Uh, so they were the not yet priests. And then there were the servants, there were the practical helpers, the people who just helped around the temple. So these people who were to become priests were appointed first, the Levites. When they appointed, they were recalled. They went out into the people and said, who are you of in this family group? We want you back in that role that your parents and your grandparents and your ancestors did. And of course, it reminded me of this passage in the New Testament where Peter is speaking to all of us, to Jew and Gentile, not just to the Levites. He says, you're like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a call of all of us to have this role, to be a priest. We're all kind of Levites training 
but the role is to be a priest, the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who is called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so the question I had was, who are we a priest to? Because all of us have been invited to be getting ready and performing the role of being standing in the gap between those who don't know God and the living God, to be interceding for them, to be bringing their prayers and to bringing back God's presence and to be declaring the goodness of God. Who are we proclaiming? I don't necessarily mean in that we say God is good. I mean that we live it out. Our lives are a declaration of the goodness of God. We are salt, we are light, we are little uh, um, spies in the land. We are out in the world as priests. It's a big thing for Baptists. It's why I don't wear a dog collar. Because we believe fervently in the priesthood of all believers. If I was to wear a dog collar, you'd all have to wear a dog collar and you'd look as silly as I would. We're all being sent out by God to be his ministers, his ambassadors. And we're proclaiming forgiveness. We're proclaiming mercy. In the Old Testament, the priests took the sacrifice and they uh, delivered it and they said to the people, you are forgiven. And we are wanting to proclaim the sacrifice of Jesus and the offer of forgiveness. I'm going to pause for a moment. Who is it that we are the representative of God to? They don't know God. They don't come to church but they do know us. And whether we like it or not, we're the priest. We may feel that we're only the Levite, that we've not quite finished, we're not quite qualified, we're not quite there. But we're the priest. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we pray for those you have placed in our lives, that we are your ambassador, messenger, instrument, Two, oh Lord, help us. Help us exude Jesus. We think of those people who only know us and do not know you. And we name them quietly in our hearts. We particularly call out to you for those we long that they would know you for themselves and join this kingdom of priests. We think of our family, we think of our colleagues, we think of our friends, we think of our neighbours. And Lord, we don't feel very good at being a priest. No, we get it wrong. Lord, in your mercy... Transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And Nehemiah tells us that there were loads and loads of people, 42,000 people, 
And then he says, I need leaders. And he chooses two men. One was his brother, and one was another guy called Hanai. He puts them in charge. Why did, we, why did they need leaders? Why couldn't it all just be done themselves? I do a lot of thinking about leadership. It's something uh, that I feel I need to learn so much about. Simon Sinek is, a, Sinek is, a, is an American leadership guru, and uh, I like a lot of what he says. He says, leading is not the same as being the leader. Being the leader means you have the highest rank, either by earning it or good fortune or navigating internal politics. Leading, however, means that others willingly follow you, not because they have to, not because they are paid to, but because they want to. I want to suggest that you are all leaders as priests. You're all people in the world. You may only lead one person. Or you may know that your role is a leadership role. Or you may not have thought of how you're a leader. One of the things I've done with our staff team is unpack seven roles that I think a leader embodies. And I want to suggest that many, many, many of us in different relationships embody several of these roles. And they go back to this idea of being a gatekeeper and a priest. What is the role of a leader? The first thing is to see the big picture, to have oversight, to be able to say, I'm scanning everything. I'm not just interested in my world. I'm interested in everything. I used to show a picture for, the, for our leadership training, and lots of you have done some leadership training with me. You'll know the picture. The picture is of a Bible study, and there are several people sitting in chairs reading their Bibles and talking to each other, and there is one person who is going outside and getting a chair for the person who's just arrived. And the question is, who is the leader? Is it the person with the Bible open? Is it the people speaking? And I would say it's the person who is getting the chair because they see something that isn't their problem and they do something about it. That's leadership. And you will be in situations where you see something, you're overseeing it, you see a big picture. You're not just thinking about this, how it affects me, but about something else. And the second role of a leader is to protect, is to ensure the safety of the purpose or of the people. Keep us on track, on mission, in family life, gatekeeping, we have a role perhaps where we keep the main thing the main thing. Perhaps in a partnership or a relationship, the main thing to keep the main thing the main thing as we know is to love, and to fulfill the command to love. And maybe that's what we're protecting. We're going to keep on loving when the voices of bitterness and anger and revenge come into our relationships. We're going to protect the purpose. And I suspect if we're invited, as we talked about last week, where we're all called to care for two or three people, there are people we protect and therefore we have a role as a leader. The third role of a leader is responsibility, is ensuring that actions are taken and decisions are made. If there's a fire, somebody shouts fire, there is, somebody shouts there's the fire exits, that's being a leader. It's saying that we need to do this. And there may be, there are actions and decisions that you know need to be made in a context known only to you. 
And then the fourth really big part of leadership, I believe, is collaboration, is building the best team for delivery. Leadership is never in the Bible, other than Jesus, and then he chose 12, a one-man thing. Unless you see the models of leadership that go wrong. Here, Nehemiah chooses two guys, and himself, so that's three. And part of leadership is to bring the voices that are going to help, bringing collaboration. Simon Sinek says this, the greatest contribution of a leader is to make others leaders. And maybe you know in life that you're encouraging and developing other people. You are helping them grow in their role as parent or partner or a colleague or a client or a patient or a student. And that's leadership. And the fifth, is it the fifth? Whatever it is, the next role of leadership is, to de- is development. It's to say, this isn't about maintenance. This isn't about staying exactly the same. This is about growth. This is about how we move forward. And leadership is being able to, in part, to be able to say, this is what we need to think about next. And that may be, again, part of what you're doing in life in a relationship or a role. And in doing that, the next part of leadership is to inspire people to be able to grow, to give them the confidence to accept newness, development, change. Simon Sinek says the role of a leader is not to come up with all the great ideas. The role of a leader is to create an environment in which great ideas can happen. And there are lots of ways in which each one of us is exercising Leadership And the final part of leadership is to deliver, is to complete, is to make sure we do what we've intended to do, or the team, or the group, or the family, or the friendship. We deliver, we follow through, we get it done. Some of you will know about Stephen Covey, another American um, leadership guru. Effective leadership is putting first things first. Effective management is discipline, carrying it out. And this links then into where we began last morning because Nehemiah then defines why he's chosen these guys. He says because he was trustworthy. What does it mean? It's because he had pure motives. He isn't after his own agenda. He's a servant-hearted person. His desire is to, to bless others rather than to be popular. And I want to encourage us to be trustworthy people who exercise a priesthood or a gatekeeping, a role of leadership in the community or in the family, and that we are reliable. We talked last week about 24-7 authentic Christian living, that we are the people that go, I understand the faithfulness of God because I see it in you. I understand the mercy of God because I see it in you. I understand the generosity of God because I see it in you. I understand the compassion of God because I see it in you. And that requires us to be consistent, reliable, day in, day out. 
And all of our culture is against that at the moment. All of our culture is do what you feel when you feel it. Drop in, drop out when you want to. Turn up when you want to, don't turn up when you want to. Say you will, but don't actually do it. Say you won't, but then do it. It doesn't matter because what matters is self. And the way of Christ is to serve. And so he chooses leaders, gatekeepers, musicians, priests who are honest and who are believable. And that's really where I want us to stay this morning. He goes on, because I know that some of you are reading the verse, and originally this was the main part of the sermon. I'm going to do this next time. <laughs> uh, because he then he says, and they feared God more than most people. And I, haven't, I want to do that justice, so I'm not going to explain that too much now, other than to say that fearing God was not that they thought that God was unpredictable or that he would go back on his mercy. It was a reverence, a respect, and an honor. And I want to tie that into the New Testament and how that concept of the fear of God is developed in the New Testament. However, I'm not going to do that now. I am going to do that, but that will be the next sermon. So I'm going to ask Paul to put a blank screen on, and I'm going to flick through a load of things uh, that you can think relieved. Wow, I'm glad. He, we How many slides is it we're, we're getting spared from? Here we go. I want to draw it all together. Who do we guard? Who has God said, I want you just to look out for them. I want you to protect. And who and how are we inspiring and enabling worship? How is it that we're living such a life that others worship? Or we contribute in such a way that others worship? And who are we a priest for? Who is it that God said, the only person they know who knows me is you. You're the priest. And where can we improve our trustworthiness? Where can we say, I will deliver. I will follow through. I'm going to ask Sheila and the band to rejoin me. Let's stand and I want to pray into these things as we leave them there on the screen for a moment. Lord, we want to offer ourselves to you. You've placed us in a dark world and asked us to be light. You've placed us in a decaying world that is going bad and asked us to be salt.
you've placed us among the friends and family that we know and love. You've placed us in a workplace or a community or a street or a friendship circle. Lord, we offer ourselves to be your person there. Help us to guard, help us to inspire, help us to model, help us to be trustworthy. May others find us believable.